Welcome to Clinical Pearls. I am Tracy White, and I'm here with my co-host, BJ Hamakuli. Hello, everybody. BJ, it's great to have you here with me uh, today. I know that you have had a, re a busy last few months training mm -hmm. for your triathlon. Yeah. And you've completed it. Mm -hmm. Was that last week? Uh, it was a few weeks ago, yeah. 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 How was that? Um, well, the event was, was fun, but the process was quite um, not so fun. I yeah, the, the training, um, you know, sometimes you, you don't want to wake up in the morning to go do a long run or go on a bike or, you know, go swim. But, you know, I think um, at the end, once you cross the finish line, it was it was it was worth it. Worth it. Yeah, yeah, I'm inspired by your training process and that you do that. You were raising money for prostate cancer. Is that right? It is. Yeah, yeah I was raising money for um, prostate cancer awareness uh, as well as uh, treatment. Um, I was able to collaborate with uh, UAB uh, Comprehensive uh, Cancer uh, Center uh, in that effort. Yeah, that's awesome. And so hopefully that money will go towards development and helping our patients that yeah. have that issue. Um, speaking of updates in medicine, yeah. we've got a really interesting guest today to talk about uterine transplant. What? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't hardly wrap my mind around it even now, but UAB has successfully transplanted a uterus in a, a person that then had a baby. That is amazing. A few, yeah. um, I think it's been a, a few amazing. months ago now, but yeah. So we've got Emily Boyd here uh, to talk with us. She is the country's only dedicated uterus transplant coordinator. So a fun conversation with her. We hope that all of our listeners enjoy it and we will get started. Awesome. Can't In 2022, there were over 42,000 transplants performed in the USA. Now, the majority of these were kidney and liver transplants. Um, and behind every one of those transplants, there were dedicated teams of physicians, nurses, social workers, most importantly, transplant coordinators, kind of the unsung heroes, maybe. Uh, today, we are joined by Emily Boydston, a graduate of the UAB School of Nursing and the only dedicated uterus transplant coordinator in the whole country. Recently, UAB had a successful uterus transplant birth, and we are so excited, Emily, to hear about that and about your career as a transplant coordinator and how you began your career. Um, so thank you so much for coming on to Clinical Pearls. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me here. So congratulations, obviously, it's a big uh, milestone mm -hmm. uh, that this baby was able to be born through a transplanted uterus. Mm -hmm. um, we'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe first what what got you to become a transplant coordinator. And then of course, we want to get into the excitement mm -hmm. that, that came from that um, successful birth yeah. recently. So I started working as a transplant coordinator back in 2015. I had just moved back from Florida. I worked at UAB for several years before that, got my master's degree at UAB, went for a job, came back, um, didn't know what I wanted to do and saw a lung transplant coordinator position. And I had worked in lung previously. And so I thought, well, give this a shot. Um, didn't know anything about transplant and ended up working in lung transplant for five years. And, um, I guess it was the summer of 2020. 
Um, and Dr. Porritt came. She was recruited to UAB. She came and did um, what I didn't realize at the time was probably a recruiting call. It was a presentation about uterus transplant, this new program. We called it VCA because there were going to be other transplants kind of under that title. Um, and I it kind of piqued my interest. You know, I, I'd been doing lung for so long and you know, it's, it can get a little sad at times working in transplant. And I was kind of looking for something a little bit uplifting. And um, I had a couple of peers who, you know, said, I think you'd be great for this, you know, kind of pushed me to interview and ended up getting the position. And um, we started the program from scratch and we officially opened in October of 2020. Awesome. So three years now, yes. um, or rather four years, uh, if you think about it. So um, <clears throat> tell us briefly what a transplant coordinator is? So um, basically, we do a lot of the background work. Um, we follow the patients, we check in with them periodically, we follow up on labs, order labs, manage their medications, refills, but we also coordinate like doctor's visits, um, you know, different specialties that need to see them like pharmacy, social work. So we're sort of, you know, in the middle of this big web of connecting them to, you know, different physicians and providers and, um, and entities like that. And so we kind of are the main person that knows everything that's going on with the patient at any one time. We're sort of the main resource. Um, and I like to joke kind of in charge of the patient a little bit um, and communicating any issues back to the surgeons or, or anything like that. So we really are there to kind of be the everything for these patients. Do you have to be a nurse to be a transplant coordinator? So yes, at UAB, at least that I can speak for, you do have to be a nurse. Um, the heart transplant program, actually, they have nurse practitioners, but most of the other programs, you only have to be a nurse. Interesting. I think that's really cool that you're that that point of contact for the patient mm -hmm. because the healthcare system is so huge. I can't right. imagine all of the different testing that these patients specifically have to get. Right. So to have someone like you right. that they can call and you'll help navigate, it must be such a relief for them. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of these, a lot of these um, candidates are coming from out of state um, because there's only technically four programs in the U.S. Um, only two really that are open doing active transplants. So they're coming from all over. They need, you know, assistance with a lot of things outside of just healthcare questions. They want to know, you know, where to stay when they come here. And if they move here, they want to know what neighborhoods to, to live in or what school systems. So we kind of do a little bit of everything. Wow. Oh, wow. So if there's somebody out there just listening to our conversation today and they're interested in becoming a transplant coordinator, uh, what kind of experience do they need to have? Um, so they they have to have a bachelor's degree. It's not necessary to have a master's. Um, I would definitely think that they would need some transplant experience, um, whether that's in an ICU, on the floor, previous coordinator position. Um, sorry, experience is great. Um, you know, but I think those types of things, like the actual patient care can be learned. You can learn pretty much anything in nursing if you just start doing it. Um, but I definitely think having you know, the the skill of speaking with the patients and really connecting with patients and then also understanding how to speak to your providers and how to develop those good, good relationships is really important. So <clears throat> let's talk more about the actual coordinating process. Mm -hmm. um, can you uh, take us through the process of um, an organ transplant, um, in your case, uterus uh, transplantation? 
Yeah. So um, we kind of fall under all the other organ transplant categories when there is a potential organ donor um, that becomes available. Um, We are notified and then our surgeon will actually evaluate that donor to see if they're appropriate, appropriate specifically for uterus transplant. So there's several things we look at, obviously female donor, um, there's age range that we look at, um, OBGYN history that we look at. So very specific things. Um, And then if we deem this donor appropriate for someone, someone on our list, then we actually approach these families separately. So it's a separate conversation from just, you know, an organ donation or eye and tissue donation conversation. Um, There's a a specific form that they go through with them about their pregnancy history or lack thereof, um, GYN history. Um, So it's a really, it's very particular, you know, to each donor that we have these specific conversations. And so um, once we find a donor that matches a recipient that's on our list, kind of we get the ball rolling. We do some testing in the background, some blood work testing, Um, We have the patient, the recipient come in, um, we get them kind of worked up pre-surgical stuff and yeah, and then everything just kind of rolls on as long as everything looks good with the donor, everything looks good with the potential recipient, they set up OR times and and kind of move forward from there. So these are live donations? No. Or they're deceased donors? Correct. These are are deceased donors only. Um, Our program only does deceased donors. There are are other programs that do living donation, um, but that was the the preference of our surgeon just to do the deceased donor. And we actually only take donors that are here in-house at UAB. So we're not traveling to to get donors. And really, that's just kind of the restriction of having a very small team. Um, Mm -hmm. Our surgeon can't really fly and and retrieve the organs and then transplant them. That's a lot of time in the OR, obviously. Um, So we actually only um, consider donors that are here in our donor recovery center. Interesting. And what is the, what's the history of this? Because I feel like for me anyway, I've only recently in the last few years heard about this because it's here at UAB, but I hadn't really heard about it. Like you do liver and kidney, you know, it's pretty much in everyone's Um, you know, vernacular now that we're talking about that, but uterus is a little bit different. So when did all this start and how has it been successful? So um, the first uterus transplant was actually um, international. It was in Saudi Arabia. I think it was like the mid 2000s, um, but it was not considered successful because they did not get her to pregnancy and delivery. Um, So the first successful, what we would consider successful with a healthy delivery was actually in 2014 in Sweden. So they were the first ones to really pioneer this. They're the ones that have, you know, the majority of the experience, um, you know, in uterus transplant. And then um, in 2000 and gosh, I think somewhere between 14 and 16, Cleveland Clinic was the first one that opened here in the U.S. and they had a successful transplant and um, delivery. And so then a couple popped up, uh, UPenn that we mentioned earlier, and then um, Baylor in Texas is the other one that, okay. that popped up. So it's it's been around, um, but it, it's always been in a clinical trial. Um, and we were actually the first program to open not under a clinical trial. So that was really, really big for UAB and for the uterus transplant, you know, journey is is getting insurance to to start recognizing these things as you know this this is a a way to treat infertility for some of these patients so getting it outside of that you know out from under that clinical trial umbrella was really really important for Dr. Porat and okay. you know UAD so you mentioned uh, a way of treating infertility right mm-hmm. obviously we have other 
multiple um, ways that you know uh, people get treated for infertility. How do you think a uterine transplant is being um, accepted in the general population and also in the medical um, population as well? Um, so in regards to the medical po population, I think, you know, we, we definitely had some skeptics mm -hmm. when we first started the program, some people that were imagine. on the team and, you know, they, they were kind of, I'll believe it when I see it sort of thing. And we definitely saw a shift after the first transplant was successful, then the first baby, you know, then we were starting to see some believers out of it. You know, I think you have to have a creative, um, <laughs> imagination a little bit for this to really see the vision of it. Um, but I will say, you know, when I was leaving my trans, my lung transplant job, I had, you know, some comments that were made, like, why would you do this? Like, why, why don't women just go and adopt or why don't they use, you know, um, a carrier or something like that? And, you know, you talk to these women and of course they've looked at these options, but to actually be able to gestate and carry their own child and, and go to these appointments and feel their baby and, and hear their heartbeat is just, it's, I mean, it's irreplaceable for these mm. women. It's, it's just that's the their main motivation is they want they want to do this themselves. So definitely lots of I think skepticism in the community, but I think once they started seeing it work, I think a lot of people were, you know, amazed by this and and really supportive. He's probably like any other organ that began. Mm -hmm. There were skeptics, right. I'm sure, for liver and kidney. Right. And heart. now look where we yeah. are, you know, yeah. and heart, can yeah. you imagine? Can you imagine? Yeah. So I, yes, I'm sure that the success will be, um, well, in your favor, obviously, and contagious. So when women want to, or someone wants a uterus transplant, are there, or what are the steps that they have to go through to get to you to get to this point? Right. And in regards maybe to now being covered by insurance, mm -hmm. are there things that they have to do first? And what's right. the process? So, um, you know, a lot of this is independent work done by these these potential candidates. Um, there aren't really referrals that are happening. It's the patients going out and seeking us out and calling us themselves. Um, these we kind of look at two categories of, of potential candidates. Um, they both have to be without a uterus. That is the requirement. We don't take out the uterus and replace it. They have to already not have a uterus. Oh, really? Whether yeah. right, so whether they were born without a uterus, there is a um, condition called MRKH. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the whole thing because it's a tongue twister. <laughs> but they are born generally without a uterus. Um, they have ovaries, but they don't generally have a uterus. Um, and then the other group of patients are those women that have had a hysterectomy for various Good. reasons. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of a, a long list of reasons. Sure. So. Um, these women, you know, they find out about our program, um, whether they call another program and realize, oh, this one's closer to my home or they're Googling uterus transplant and we're one of the first ones that come up um, and they make this phone call. And we actually have um, kind of a few steps that they go through. We have a screener form just to make sure that, you know, are they calling because they want to donate their uterus because we get a lot of phone calls about that or you know, they within our age range. So we kind of, you know, screen up front to just, you know, eliminate any patients that might not, you know, be appropriate for the program. Um, and then once they kind of go through, we get medical records, we review those with the surgeon, we determine if they potentially could be a good candidate. We actually do what we've called um, a virtual visit. It's sort of um, like a kind of like a conversation like this with the patient and their partner over Zoom. 
And so we do this kind of get, get to know them, hear their story. Um, they can see our faces, learn a little bit more about the program, learn about Dr. Porritt um, and her history of uterus transplant. And um, once we complete that, we, if they are appropriate, we actually invite, invite them down for an evaluation. Mm. Um, and it's a three-day evaluation where we do kind of a slew of tests. We do blood work. Um, we, I do a teaching class with them. They see pharmacy. They see a psychiatrist. They see all the surgeons, physicians that are involved. Um, it's sort of, you know, a marathon, a, a, well, a sprint, I guess, through through three days. And um, and I'm there kind of coordinating and helping walk them to appointments because they've never been to UAB for the majority of them. And um, and just helping sort of, you know, create that that timeline for them for the three days that they're here. Um, and then once they, they complete this evaluation, they're discussed with our multidisciplinary conference, um, which is basically all the people that were involved in their evaluation. And we deem, are they appropriate to move forward for listing or not? Um, if they are, if they have not created, and this may be a whole other conversation we might go into, but if they are a candidate um, for listing, if they have not already created embryos, they have to go through the IVF process mm -hmm. at that point. So we will not list them until they have sufficient amount of embryos and quality of embryos. Okay. So <clears throat> let's say the the... The, the surgery has been done, mm -hmm. the transportation has, uh, has occurred. Mm -hmm. What's the downtime um, recovery and from the time that they get the transplantation to the time they get the mm -hmm. implantation of the right. um, uh, embryos? What's the time period like? So, so generally it's six months. Okay. Um, you know, I think some programs have pushed it, trying to get it a little bit quicker, like three four months maybe. Um, we're sticking with the six months because we want to do this right. Again, we're the only ones not under clinical trials. So, you know, we really want to be very purposeful with our decisions. And so, um, yeah, so they have to, to recover for six months okay. and then we'll get the embryo transfer um, schedule started and, and all of that going. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> let's say, for instance, you've had a, a, a patient who's had successful uh, birth and do they keep the uterus or what, the, what happens after that? So it depends. Mm -hmm. um, if, if the patient wants to potentially go for a second live birth, we allow them to have up to two. Okay. Um, if there's no medical reason to take it out, if they're wanting to go for a second, then we'll allow them to keep it in. Um, however, some of our patients have said, you know, I want to go through this process. I only want to have one. And then I just want to be thankful for that opportunity. This is what we're going to do. And we actually do the hysterectomy at the time of the C-section delivery. So it's all done at one time because it's, it's a conversation we have before this day actually gets there because all of these are scheduled C-sections. So we know when these patients are going to, going to deliver. So, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, they can keep, keep the uterus if, okay if they'd like, but they can't keep it after that, unfortunately. Um, this is a temporary transplant. These transplant medications are kind of nasty yeah. to be on um, for long-term, and so we're really careful. We don't want to damage kidneys and other organs, so. So once they have the birth, they get their hysterectomy, and then mm -hmm. they don't need any medications anymore. So they there is a weaning, like a tapering process that we have over like a month, month and a half, sometimes two months. Um, we're trying to do a slow taper because inevitably they're going to have pieces of tissue left from the donor that they're going to reject naturally um, as we wean them down. Mm -hmm. So we want to keep a close eye on them to make sure there's no infection that, you know, um, develops no bad rejection where they're getting fevers, they're getting abscesses, things like that. So after, you know, we when we start that tapering process, they're usually 
here, um, gosh, I guess our last couple were here a little over a month doing that taper. Okay. Um, and then once they've been surgically cleared and they're off the taper, they're free to, to move back to wherever they moved here from. So you actually do have uh, couples that come to Birmingham strictly for that for the procedure yes. and they stay here for how long? Until the uterus is out. So we require them to relocate at the time that we do the transplant. Now, some of our candidates have decided they want to relocate before while they're on the waiting list because they want to get established. You know, they want to find jobs. Sure. They want to find somewhere to live. We've had kind of split down the middle half and half. Um, our other candidates have decided, you know, we've got our life up here. We have other children that are in school, things like that. And so they've decided we're going to move at the time of the transplant, which, you know, both have their pros and cons. Both can be chaotic. Um, but, you know, everyone so far has made it work. And yeah, it's, it's worked out individually for, for each candidate. Interesting. So um, once they get on the list, what's your wait time like? To, yeah. from listing to actual transplant? So on average, I would say most of our patients, so we've done the five transplants, um, I would say on average, it's been between four and six months. So it's not a very long um, wait time. Um, waiting time depends on a lot of factors, obviously organ availability, mm -hmm. because we are looking at such a specific mm -hmm. criteria of organ donation. Um, but then also if there's other limiting factors. So if we have um, a recipient that's CMV negative, that can really prolong their wait because we're only going to match them with a donor that's CMV negative. We don't want to give them C CMV and obviously not if they're getting pregnant in the, in the future. Um, other things, you know, not to get into the nitty gritty, but there's some blood work that we do with their immuno, um, immunobiology with uh, matching, you know, their the donor and the recipient together. So making sure there's not no um, mismatches, basically. Cool. So different things like that. If a, a woman wants to be a, a a donor, a, a uterine donor, in planning for that, like, say my family, for example, knows I, I yes, I check organ donation mm -hmm. on my license or whatever. Do I have to specifically say that I want which organs that I want to donate or no. does that cover everything? It covers everything that you, that you would qualify for. So they evaluate <clears throat> all the organs yeah. um, and then they decide, you know, the heart is good, but the lungs are no good, sure. you know, and, and kind of they look at them individually. And again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, this the uterus transplant conversation is a whole separate conversation yeah. that we do after they've already, you know, accept been accepted as a donor for the other organs, mm -hmm. then we approach the family oh, separately really? about uterus. Okay. 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 And I'm sure there's an age range. Yes. I assume there's an age range. There is. Um, I believe it is 19 to mm -hmm. 45, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. I think. I don't think we've I don't believe we've done we've taken any donors over 40, but that's just how it's been. It's not, you know, by yeah. any particular choice. Is there uh, an age specification for the recipient? There is. Okay. Um, so we, it's really more of the age limit, not really the age, you know, qualifying mm -hmm. on the lower end. But um, you know, these these women have to get through IVF, which takes some time, um, especially if they have to go through multiple rounds. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, pregnancy takes some time. The recovery between the transfer and the and the transplant. Uh, so really, on paper, you know, our program says thirty seven is going to be the cutoff. Um, it can move a little bit if these if these candidates come to us and they already have embryos created that can change how how we evaluate them a little bit but we really want them 
pregnant and delivered before 40, if at all possible, because they're already high risk because of the transplant, these medications. And then you add the age on top of that. And unfortunately, it's just kind of a, a bad combination that we're trying to hopefully avoid. What happens when they're on the immunosuppressant? during pregnancy. I mean, I would think that's that would be really tricky. Mm -hmm. So um, we only put them on pregnancy safe um, immunosuppression. There is one drug in particular that we do not use because it it is not safe in pregnancy. Um, but, you know, this, this has long been studied in kidney transplant patients because they're on the same medications and some of them go on to become pregnant later mm -hmm. on. And so it's not technically a new thing. Um, but what's interesting for us is Pregnancy actually can alter the drug levels um, just because of all the blood flow and all the things going on with the body. And so we have to start really, um, you know, keeping a close eye on these patients. We're getting lab work like every week on these poor, these poor girls, but they are troopers. And, yeah. you know, because, I mean, one week they could be fine. The next week it could be crazy high or crazy low. And, and so just monitoring very closely is important. Mm -hmm. Is the general public, um, what's their awareness regarding uterine transplant. Do you get a lot of calls about, you know, hey, I want to get uh, this transplantation? So we do get quite a bit of interest from, from you know, potential candidates that want to do this. Um, I would say the general knowledge in the public, I don't think there's a lot of it because mm -hmm. um, I know anytime I'm introducing myself or talking to people that, you know, I'm meeting for the first time and I tell them what, the, what I do, it's always like, jaw on the floor what we can do this like i had no idea and i was like i was the same way when it was presented to me i didn't even realize this was something that we were doing um but i don't i really don't think there's you know general knowledge in the public about this i think in the medical medical community absolutely in the gyn community we're getting there um i don't think that um, sadly i think there should be more knowledge about it especially with the infertility you know specialists knowing that this is yeah. an option yeah. um but there could be some skeptics on that side of it as well. Um, but I, I don't think outside of the medical community, there's a huge yeah. awareness of this. Well, to be honest with you, I was one of those who was yeah. totally unaware until I saw the, the article. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, wow, we've come a long way, you know. So um, on that same token, um, do insurances cover this procedure? So unfortunately, no. Um, and that is, I think, Dr. Porritt's life mission is to get insurance on board with some part of this, whether it's the medications, covering evaluation. Um, you know, we've engaged with some of our patients, you know, asking them if there comes a time that we might need you to speak with representatives from these insurance companies because they're really the powerful voice, you know, about like why this is so needed in, in the community. Um, but unfortunately, it is not it is not covered. Mm. Have have they expressed a reason why where it would cover other yes. organs? Well, incidentally, um, a bill actually got sent to an insurance uh, company on accident through, it was a hospitalization for the transplant. And of course it got denied. And the reason was it was still um, under investigation. It was still, you know, clinical trial type stuff. Like we're, you, you know, it wasn't, they didn't recognize it as like, we're doing this as an actual medical I procedure. Yeah. I see. Uh, hopefully that will change though. I hope so. You know, all the other success and the other organ transplants have led to them being covered. So I would assume that right. the more and more success that there is, then surely there'll be a change in that. Right. Um, back to the actual pregnancy after transplant, does it go full term? 
So we do not let them actually go past 37 weeks. Okay. So that is our limit. Um, out of the deliveries that we have had, no one has actually made it to 37 weeks. We had one that got to 36, um, which is fantastic. But, you know, really the the between 35 and 37 is obviously safe. The, the baby's safe yeah. to, to be outside the womb. Um, a lot of times these patients in general and, and other transplant programs tend to, to deliver early. Um, and, you know, that's for various reasons that kind of apply to the general pregnancy population anyways. Um like preeclampsia, where their high, their blood pressure gets high, um, diabetes can play a role. Um, you know, different things like that that might you know we might need to make the decision to to take them earlier. But in general, we try to get to thirty five to thirty seven. We know Emily, you're a trailblazer, and um, you're the only um, transplant coordinator for uterus uh, transplantation in the country. How does that make you feel? So I, I joked with Dr. Port. I said, you know, when she said that in the press release, I said, oh, no, you've just opened <laughs> open a can of worms. So so basically the, I've spoken with some of the coordinators that are at the other programs and they're all lovely, lovely people. But they are this is the second job for them. Sure. You know, they are liver transplant coordinators, kidney transplant coordinators. Some of the girls in Texas actually are GYN nurses and they, they're not from transplant. They're from the other side mm -hmm. of it. Um, and so when we created this program. That was Dr. Port's vision was like, I want dedicated, I want a dedicated transplant coordinator. I want a dedicated transplant assistant. I don't want them to be distracted with other things, you know, and I think that's probably why we've been able to focus so well on these patients and give them such individualized care is because I don't have any other distractions. You know, this is all I do. And I work Monday through Friday, but I really work all the time. Sure. You know, all these girls, you know, we're in contact all the time. They've got my cell number if they have an emergency. Like this uh -huh. is a very different type of relationship than I've had with patients in the past. So it's it's very cool to be a part of. It does, it does sound really amazing that you can have that depth in a relationship with your patient. Right. Um, so have you met the baby? Yes. <laughs> How I've exciting got, I've was gotten that? to hold two of them. Oh, oh, they were so tiny. Yeah. Oh. Um, so our first girl, when she delivered earlier this year, um, I, I went into the room to visit her and we looked at each other and we just both started oh. crying <laughs> because, and I'm still emotional about it, but, yeah. you know, it was like three years that we had been doing this together and mm. all for this moment, you yeah. know, and it was just overwhelming. Mm. And, um, but the babies are all healthy. They're all just adorable. Um, doing great and thriving. Yeah, I can imagine those three years are worth it. You yeah, know, absolutely. Uh, once you hold that baby. <clears throat> so what are some of the current issues um, in uterus transplantation? What are some of the, I guess, the holdbacks? You know, why can't we move forward in making this um, more common? So, so the insurance is, I mm -hmm. think, the biggest um, yeah. thing that holds us back just because, you know, there's there's only a select people in the nation that can, you know, afford to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that limits the people that we can help um, greatly. And um, I, I think lack of knowledge and lack of understanding of, you know, at least from like we talked about the referring referring providers, um, like reproductive endocrinology, mm -hmm. the GYN, you know, even even the physicians that um, work in like GYN oncology that do radical hysterectomies for cancer, like this could potentially be an option several years down the road for some of these these women. And so I think having the conversations in the doctor's offices are really important. Um, 
we actually got an internal referral from one of our physicians, which was huge. Um, and, you know, it's so we know that at least at UAB, the conversations are being had. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that needs to spread to other other places outside of just UAB and outside of just Alabama. I think, you know, just the awareness of, of pushing patients to us and, and allowing us to evaluate them um, so that we can help more women and insurance companies. I mean, that's the bottom line is, you know, we're we're limited. You know, we won't be able to do this forever if we don't mm-hmm. have insurance, you know, hop on board with something. So just a follow up question in that. Do you see a future where you do open the doors for live donors? That would be a great question for Dr. Porritt. Yeah. <laughs> um, I personally, just from my experience working with her and with the program, I don't think that we'll ever do living donors. I never say never, but I don't see that in the foreseeable future here. Um, So a lot of times when patients come, you know, either they want a living donor, like, hey, my sister wants to donate to me or someone calls wanting to donate. I usually direct them actually to Baylor because Baylor's the most active and they've actually done the most transplants in the U.S. to date. So I send them over there. And, you know, if that's how they want to help and give back, then try to try to connect that. That's awesome. Well, I hope one day that you have just walls and walls of pictures of babies from your That's work. It's so funny you say that. Dr. Port, when we first started the program, she had picked out a wall and she said, this is going to be our oh. baby wall. And oh, so I love it. That's something we're working on. Good. I, I'm excited to hear more about it in the future. Um, that's about our time for today. It was wonderful talking with you. Yes, well. um, this is just such an interesting, interesting topic and something that I'm like BJ said, I really hadn't thought much about it either until... I read about all the work that you guys are doing, so that's amazing. If a patient did want to look up some more resources, mm-hmm. where would you direct them to even learn a little bit more? So, so we have a website. Um, it is uabmedicine.org slash transplant slash uterus. They can also just put UAB uterus transplant into the Google search bar. We're probably the first or second one, you know, if, especially if they put UAB, will be the first one to pop up. Um, we also have a telephone line. Um, I man the phones right now, and mm-hmm. um, it's... Uh, a three three UAB CTI one, so they can directly speak with me if they want more information about the program, um, or they can read all about it um, online. Yeah, sure. We'll definitely have uh, those uh, links to our um, show notes. Well, thank you very much, Emily, for joining us, and I hope our listeners were able to hear, uh, learn something new about um, uterine transplant. Sure thing, I did. Um, Tracy, what about you? Yeah, I learned a lot. Thank you so yeah, much. Sure. Thank you. Both. Amazing work that you're doing. Um, And we hope our listeners will join us again on the next Clinical Pearls.